Have you ever started something and failed to finish it? That's really how I feel right now. We are halfway through the book of Acts. Exactly halfway. And I'm not going to get to finish it with you guys. I will trust, though, that God will work through the rest of the book of Acts, through different voices, to continue to shape you into the church that God is calling you to be. We started 13 months ago. We've had some interruptions, like we did our, our church discipline series, and we did our summer series on the book of Ephesians. But I'm very thankful that Kurt, next week, will be picking up in chapter 15. I suggest that you read chapter 15 this week. It's going to take a few weeks to get through chapter 15, but it is a very interesting and important chapter. It's important in the history of the church. It's important in the history of the world, too. It's where that question comes up again. We've dealt with it already a few times in Acts. We dealt with it very much when we went through the book of Galatians a couple years ago. The question is this. Christianity started within Judaism. Jesus himself was a Jew. All his first followers were Jewish. The early church was almost entirely Jewish. But as Christianity grew, lots of people from outside of the nation of Israel became Christians. And there was this tension that rose up. Does the church need to require these Gentile, non-Jewish believers to become Jewish in order to become Christian? Do they have to, for instance, have the males circumcised? Do they need to follow the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament? That's the question that comes up yet again in chapter 15 of Acts. There's a big church meeting, and there's some drama, and they try to put that issue to rest once and for all. Today, though, we're still in chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. Paul would take at least three missionary journeys and then another journey in prison or in captivity on the way to prison in Rome. Would anybody like to guess how far through the first missionary journey we are? We're halfway through. So we're halfway through the book of Acts. We're halfway through the first missionary journey. Perhaps you're hoping I'll preach half a sermon. That is not the case. I'm sorry. So what they've done is they started in the city of Antioch in Syria, and they sailed to Cyprus where they walked across the island proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to people as they went. They sailed over to Turkey where they proclaimed the gospel in Perga. And at that point, John Mark, who is the author of the book of Mark, chickened out and abandoned them. They sailed, I'm sorry, after sailing to Turkey and preaching in Perga, they went up to Antioch in Pisidia, different Antioch than they started at. They preached the gospel there. Lots of people, especially the Gentiles, came to saving faith in Christ in Antioch. It was a big surprise. Suddenly, everybody was very interested in the gospel, but there were some of the Jewish nation there who were jealous, and they rose up in a mob and drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. So they traveled to Iconium, where again they preached the gospel. They saw a lot of people trust Christ for salvation, but again, some of the Jewish people who refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah got a mob together, and this time they tried to murder Paul and Barnabas by stoning them. They learned of the plot, and they fled for their lives to the city of Lystra, where once again they proclaimed the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. This time, their preaching was accompanied with a miracle of healing, where God chose to heal a man who had been crippled since birth. He had never walked, and yet God healed him in the presence of many who had known him his whole life, and he jumped up and was even able to start walking. We talked about how that is not only physically, but also all the the neurons that need to connect together in a new way so that he knows how to walk, how amazing that is. The people of the city of Lystra saw that amazing miracle, and they, in their lostness, in their pagan religion, they concluded, well, these two men must actually be gods come to visit us. So they decided that Barnabas must be Zeus and Paul must be Hermes, and the priests of the city got an ox, and they were going to sacrifice the ox and worship to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas figured out what was going on, and they stopped them at the last minute. They explained the gospel to them, and we ended our passage last week with this verse, verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 18. It says this, even with these words, as they pled with them, please don't sacrifice to us. We're just men with a message. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering a sacrifice to them. found that amazing. These people were so excited about the power that they saw in Paul and Barnabas that even though Paul and Barnabas said, we are just men with a message for you, Paul and Barnabas were barely able to stop them from worshiping. Now, that might sound like a nice problem, a pretty cool problem to have. Maybe you've, you've really longed for popularity or to be at the top of the social heap or to, to be the boss in the company or whatever, and you, you hear this and you think, well, it'd be pretty cool if people thought that I was somehow divine and wanted to worship me. But we as humans, just as quickly as we can make things into gods, false gods, idols, we can turn on them also. We saw that in the story last week. Pop- popular culture today is full of examples of that. I think of Kanye West, who was idolized by so many, And just in the last few weeks, as he has made anti-Semitic comments, he is now hated by many who used to love him. Or I think of AOC, who was the darling of the radical left, and yet in the last couple weeks she's been shouted down at her own town halls because she's no longer radical enough for the people that elected her. Or Elon Musk, who was loved and adored as a hero of humanity for making electric cars popular. And now, as he takes over Twitter and is trying to end censorship, some of those same people who worshipped him now proclaim him to be Satan incarnate. We do this, too. We, as humans, are prone to make gods in our own images, and then we turn on them when they don't fulfill our expectations for them. For Paul and Barnabas, the story is about to take a very dramatic turn. One minute, they are barely able to stop the crowds from worshiping them, and the next moment, we see this. So this is Acts chapter 14. This is our passage for today, 19 through 28. It's on page 923 if you're looking at one of the Black Pew Bibles. So they just convinced them not to worship them as gods. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That is a quick change in the story. We think you are a God in flesh and we're going to worship you. Next verse, 
We're going to stone you to death. Now, if you know the book of Acts, you know this is not the end of Paul. They think he's dead, but he's not dead. But think about Barnabas in that situation where he doesn't know how the story ends, right? And he's just watched as his beloved brother Paul has been dragged out of the city by other brothers of the Jewish nation. This is all happening in one big extended family. He's dragged outside the city and he's pelted with huge stones until he's so broken and bleeding and apparently not breathing well that they assume he's dead. And then they just go back in town and head to the bar or whatever it is that they do after you stone somebody in the city of Lystra. I imagine Barnabas and maybe a few others cautiously, timidly approaching the body as the angry mob disperses. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. What? So the mob is sure he's dead. They stop the stoning. He's broken. He's bloodied. He's probably not breathing. The church, small church in Lister, gathers around him. We're not told that they pray for him or anything. They just gather around him, and he gets up. I'm amazed at how understated this apparent miracle is. Luke just writes it there for us. Paul got up, just like nothing had happened. I think of that scene in uh, the classic Monty Python movie, The Search for the Holy Grail, where the plague has been sweeping through Europe and people are dying left and right. And so there's a guy whose job it is to just go around the village with a cart collecting the people who had died the, the day before. And so he, he just keeps calling out, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. You may remember that scene. And then in the background, for some reason, there's a lady smacking a cat against the wall while the rest of the dialogue takes place, where a dude shows up with another dude over his shoulder in order to place him on the cart, but the dude over his shoulder is not dead yet, and he wants everybody to know that. He says, I'm not, I'm not dead yet. He says, I, I'm getting better. I think I'll go for a walk. Reminds me of the story in Paul, in Acts here of Paul. He's, he's getting better, and he's going to get up and go for a walk. Where does he walk? He walks right back into the city, full of the people who just tried to murder him. Maybe Paul is insane. Or maybe Paul trusts in the sovereignty of God in a way that we find just mind-boggling. That he knows he's called to these people. And that God is not done with Paul's mission in Lystra. And so he goes back in to spend the night encouraging, building up the church, probably trying to explain to them how to trust in the sovereignty of God. Just amazing. We're told that after that, he goes on to the city of Derbe. I keep wanting to call it Derby, but that would be like down in Kentucky. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, the city of Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. All right. 
So notice, they've proclaimed the gospel again. And again, lots of people have come to saving faith in Christ. These guys are very gifted evangelists. Each town that they go to, people are trusting in Christ as a result of their proclamation of the gospel. As they get done with Derbe, they decide to turn around and retrace their steps through the towns that they had just visited. That should be surprising to us. Because in each of those towns, they were either run out or barely escaped for their lives, or they were actually stoned. Now, if we look at the map of their journey, we would be even more surprised that they choose to turn around and go back. We see how they've started over on the right-hand side of the map, and they went to Cyprus, and they went up through what is today Turkey, and they're over in Derbe there. Now, if they're on their way back to the place where they started, why not just complete the circle and get back there faster? Or if we go to the, the next map, which is zoomed in a little farther, Caleb, we'll see that the, the map that we got out of the ESV Study Bible has a couple extra features to it. There's the dotted line showing the ancient Roman road, so it's really easy to walk along, right? In fact, that road in that region still exists today. This is a picture of that road in that region still in existence. Kind of puts our road crews to shame, doesn't it? But if we go back to that zoomed-in map, we'll see that there's another feature there called the Cilician Gates. The Cilician Gates. It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or something. So let's go to the next slide there. So this is a picture of the Cilician Gates looking north. You can see it's, it's almost like a chunk has been bit out of the mountain range there. That Roman road goes through the Cilician Gates. Now, if we were to look at it through the Google Earth app, it's the next slide here. Kalen, let's go to the next slide. So you can see the, the yellow line is now like an interstate highway that goes through there. But there's much higher mountains to the north. And then just to the left of the middle of the picture is this smaller mountain that's only 5,000 feet above the valley floor, this smaller mountain that sticks up out of the middle of nowhere. Now, you can go there today, and there's a nice rock outcropping. Let's go to the next picture. It points out where it is. Nice rock outcropping where you can sit and get a view of the area. Let's go to the next slide. Would anybody like to go? Sit, stand, hang off that rock climb, that rock, rock out climb. 5,000 feet to the valley floor. Now, here's the thing. As you probably guessed, it's a matter of perspective. If we go to the next picture, you can see the, the knob there on the right. That's the knob that they've been hanging off of. But there's a military installation a little farther up so that you can take the camera angle downward and get the right angle to make it look like you're about to fall 5,000 feet to your death, but really it's more like 20 feet. Still. What? It would still hurt, yeah. And there's, you know, there's a slope that you just roll then and then fall 5,000 feet to your death. But you get a little different angle and your perspective changes, much like in our story here, where Paul chose not to go through that beautiful scenic pass on the way through back to Antioch, if he had done that, he could have stopped in his hometown of Tarsus, which is just 
south of that pass. He could have hung out with his family, with his childhood buddies. He could have proclaimed the gospel to those that he knew best from his childhood. But instead, he turns around and he heads back through the towns that tried to kill him. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to, and he names them, Lystra, Iconium, to Antioch, all hostile towns. What does he do there? Why is he going back to them? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, which is hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul is committed to strengthening the disciples, the followers of Jesus, that he and Barnabas made on their outward journey. They proclaim the gospel to them. They've trusted in Christ alone for salvation, but then Paul and Barnabas have to move on, leaving them vulnerable. How will they grow in the faith? Well, Paul and Barnabas go back in order to encourage them. How long do they spend at each place? We don't know. They would have probably read to them from the Old Testament. They would have spoken of the the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They would have told the story of the early church so far, including the controversies and the, the challenges that the churches had overcome. And they would have encouraged them that Jesus is Lord over all and lovingly caring for them, even when it doesn't look like it. We're also told, though, that Paul not only is encouraging them, but he's he's challenging them in things. He's not sugarcoating the message. He tells them that they're to expect hardship. He's not talking about the kind of hardship that everybody experiences in life just because we live in a broken world. He's talking about a specific kind of hardship that comes when you choose to follow Jesus as Lord. He says you should count on it. Now, younger folks in the room, I want you to hear this clearly. If you decide that you're going to follow Jesus as Lord, it's going to make some things hard for you. There are some ways that you could just fly through life easy peasy, no problem, if you just ignore Jesus. But if you're going to give your life and follow him, there are some things that are going to be much harder. God promises that, but he also promises never to leave you. So in John 16, Jesus himself says to the guys that he loves and has spent the most time with in the world, his best buddies, he says this to them, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That's great. Thank you, Jesus. We like that. In the world, you will have tribulation, not might or If you're unlucky, you will, but you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And they probably had no idea really what he was talking about at that point. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, you will be delivered up, means handed over to custody by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. Wow. We think, man, we can count on family. We can always count on family, but Luke, or Jesus is telling his disciples here that if you follow me, some of you, you're going to be betrayed by your own family members. And he goes on, some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all 
for my namesake. Strong words from Jesus himself. 2 Timothy 3 then, Paul, later in life, writing to young Pastor Timothy, he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that should be all of our goals, live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. You and I are in a battle. We have enemies. And Jesus calls us to love all of our enemies. But don't naively think that your enemies love you. The threat is real. If you follow Jesus as Lord of your life, you will face trouble. Aren't you thankful that the Bible is honest about this? That it doesn't sugarcoat it. Because if you can read your Bible and you can know your Bible, you will not be surprised when such hardship, suffering, tribulation comes. It's promised to those who follow Jesus as Lord, and He also promises to never leave you, to never abandon you, even in those darkest moments of hardship. You can trust Him through it all. All right, what else did Paul do in these new churches? Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul knows that these churches need strong leadership as he leaves. He just can't be there the rest of his life. He's got to go to hundreds of other towns in the course of his life to share the gospel. And so he needs to make sure that there are strong leaders in place. And he knows that God has a plan for how churches are to be led. Specifically, God has ordained some men of godly reputation and lifestyle to be appointed as elders to love and to lead the church. If you'd like to read the two passages that most clearly explain what those qualifications are, you can read 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1, where God paints for us a picture of the kind of guy that he's looking for to lead a church. Notice a few things about these elders. First, that they're appointed. They're not elected. Now, that's important because eldership is not a popularity contest. It's, it's not something you campaign for. It's something that God chooses you for, develops you for, calls you to, and then the church recognizes that calling and affirms it. So Paul and Barnabas, who are themselves elders, doing the work of an elder, they, they recognize in some of the folks there in the church that God has called them to elders, and so they appoint them as elders. Now, in our church here, there's that aspect of appointing where the elders say, we think that God's calling you to be an elder, and then there's an affirmation from the rest of the church where the church decides, yes, we, we believe, we affirm that this person is called to love and to lead us as an elder. Notice also that this is done in the verse here through prayer and fasting. So it's not just Paul and Barnabas saying, okay, we need some leaders. Who do we got? No, I don't like these guys. I like these guys instead. No, they are relying on the leadership of God, even to the point where they're saying, okay, we're just not going to eat for a while so that we can focus on prayer so that we can know for sure that we're choosing the right people to appoint as elders because this is so important. Then we're told that they're 
They're prayerfully committed to the Lord. Not that the elders are saying, we are committed, but that Paul and Barnabas commit the elders to the Lord. They're saying, we're leaving, we're entrusting you and your leadership to God. There's no email, there's no cell phones, there's no way to communicate other than a letter that could take months. We cannot supervise you, but we leave you in the care of God. God loves you, He cares for you, and He's leading you so that you can love, care for, and lead the church that you're now an elder of. And then they walk away, and they trust that God is working through those leaders. Some of you are already serving in significant leadership positions here in this church. And for some of you, it's a real surprise because if you go back a few years, like you didn't even want anything to do with God. And yet God chose you and saved you and started growing you and then surprisingly called you to leadership. And you might identify with these guys here in Lystra or Iconium or Antioch who, man, they're just barely in the faith and now suddenly they're being appointed as elders. You're like, I'm in way over my head. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe God is calling you to leadership and you're resisting that. You're saying, I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to let other people lead. But the church needs you. Let's go on to verse 24. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. I don't know why they skipped over Cyprus on the way back. Maybe the wind was no good. So they go back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So this is kind of like the the reverse side of what just happened, where they have appointed leaders and they commit them to the care of God. They say, we can't take care of you, but we trust Jesus to take care of you, and they go on. That same sort of thing happened months, maybe a couple years beforehand, when these guys set off on their journey from Antioch in Syria. The leaders of the church and the whole church there in Antioch sent Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark out on the mission, and they said, we can't protect you, we can't lead you, we can send you with money and supplies and and send you off now, but once you're gone, you're just in the care of the Lord. Both the sending out of them and then the returning of them reflect a trust in the sovereignty of God to protect his people. Now, don't miss an important missionary strategy in here. It's so obvious that we could miss it easily. It's, It's so common in the story of Acts that We kind of skip over it, and actually many churches have forgotten it. But notice that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they were sent out as missionaries by a local church. The way that missions have been done in the last 150 years or so is that somebody says, I think God's calling me to be a missionary, and so they sign up with a mission-sending organization, and they go to a whole bunch of churches to raise support for money and for prayer and for other things, and they get this big network And then they go off on their mission. But here in the book of Acts, we see 
a local church, raising up leaders from within, recognizing that God is sending them out on mission, and they commission them, they support them, they send them out as a single local church. And what that means is when they get to come home, they're not running around to 50 other churches trying to raise more money and support for the next mission. They get to rest in the care of that local church. It has been my hope and prayer that God would raise up from us missionaries that we could support as a church. That's still my hope and prayer for this congregation. Now, quick update on two of the missionary families that we currently support. The Stocks family in Alaska is doing well, and uh, I'm personally hoping that our family gets to go visit them, or at least Jen and I get to go visit them <laughs> next August, maybe. So that'd be great. Maybe too much to try to take all the kids. Certainly Owen's not going with us. But um, they're doing well, serving well in missionary aviation in Alaska. The Mahmoud family, who are in Kenya, um, they need you guys praying for them. It is way past the time when they're supposed to come back to the United States for a time of rest as missionaries. It's called furlough. The reason they haven't been able to come back as a family is because they have adopted in Kenya Abdi's niece, it's Shamsa, the one on the, the far, the, the right side of your picture there. They've adopted her a couple years ago, but the United States refuses to process the paperwork to allow Abdi and Shamsa to come to the United States to finalize the American side of the adoption. So she's considered adopted in Kenya, but she's not considered adopted in America, and the United States refuses to allow the two of them to travel to, the Amer to America to do those things. So they need you to be praying for them. They have been working hard for many years, and they need a break, and they need to resolve this thing for their family. They are hoping that that'll get resolved sometime in the next few months, and then they'll jump on a plane, and they'll come rest in the United States. It's my prayer that that will happen, and that they'll be able to come visit you guys and tell you amazing stories about what God has been doing in Kenya that they can't just share publicly for the safety of those that they are serving. All right. Verse 27. When they arrived, that's in Antioch, Syria, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Almost done here, but I want you to notice a few things in here. First, the church is not a building. The church is the people. And they're called together they're gathered together to hear the report. We, as people, are a church, and we function as a church when we gather together. We need to prioritize the gathering together of the church. When they gathered this particular time, it wasn't for a regular worship service, it was to hear a report of the mission so Paul and Barnabas declared all that God had done with them, specifically how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Notice that even the way it's phrased here is that this is about God. This is not about Paul and Barnabas. I mean, as amazing as these guys are, like heroes of the faith, right? It's they declared what God had done through them. It's God doing the work. Specifically, 
What is that work? God has opened a door to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, to enter into the family of God, to enter into the kingdom of God. And that will lead you then into the controversy of chapter 15, where that very thing is debated in the church. But Paul and Barnabas, they are humble. They recognize that the work that they're doing is really God's work through them. They are simply messengers and simple workers. God is the one who is truly accomplishing anything. That's the the beautiful, humble side of this. Now, they avoid falling into the trap on the other side of that, too, though. Sometimes we think, okay, if God really is sovereign, if God is really in control, if God is really the one doing all the work, then I don't have to do anything. I'll just sit back and I'll let God do his thing, and it's going to happen no matter what. That's not what these guys did, though. They were not lazy. They were not passive. They, they risked their lives multiple times. Paul's going to go on and do it over and over and over again. They risked their lives. They endured great hardship. They're, they're walking all through mountainous regions. They're just, they did hard work for the glory of God. They didn't say, I'm going to sit back I'm going to let God do the work. Instead, they said, take me, I'm going to do it. At the risk of boring you, let me remind you again. You are not saved by your works. It is only the work of God that can save you. But once he has saved you, you are called to do good works in response to the salvation that he has freely offered you. We saw this very clearly in the last verse that we memorized this summer. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who's making us? Who's creating us? God is. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus with a purpose for good works. God prepared those good works. He has gotten them ready for us, and now we walk in them. What are you doing for the kingdom of God? Are you serving? Are you giving? Are you sacrificing to see God's church grow and thrive? God works through his people. Even John Mark, who chickened out, God would then work through to write the gospel of Mark later. Are you being used by him even if you've already failed? All right, let's wrap this up. Read those two verses again. Verse 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. So what's the main point of the report? To tell what God has done. What's the main thing that God has done? He has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God did not limit salvation just to the Jewish nation, and I am so thankful for that. He chose the Jewish people, back with Abraham, he chose the Jewish people as his special, beloved, chosen nation, and he worked through them for thousands of years, promising that someday the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer would come through that nation. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is that Messiah. And he ministered almost exclusively within that that realm of of the Jewish nation. 
And he was rejected by his Jewish brothers and sisters. And he was hung on a cross to die. They thought they were killing a heretic, an insurrectionist. What they were really doing was fostering the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you've been part of this church for a long time, you've heard me explain the gospel over and over and over and over, over and over and over and over. But let me just say it one more time. You and I are lost without Jesus. We are utterly hopeless. The Bible calls us dead in our sins, destined for eternal punishment. But God loves us so much that he made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. All of the things that we've ever done in rebellion against him, all the things that we've just even thought in our hearts, and we never gave voice to it, and nobody but God knows what they are. All of those things that stand as a record against us, God in his grace and his mercy made a way for that record to be wiped out so that we could be welcomed into his family. And the way that he did that was by coming as the Messiah himself, Christ, God in the flesh, and taking upon himself all of our ugliness, all of our sin, all of the things that weigh us down and make us unworthy of eternal life. He took those all, He paid the price by dying in our place. He rose from the dead, showing that he conquered sin and the grave. And now he freely offers to you and to me forgiveness, eternal life, peace with God, adoption into the family of God, membership in the kingdom of God. And we receive that as a gift. It is not something we work for. It's not something you can be good enough to do to earn your way in. We're all welcomed in the same way, whether Jew or Gentile, whether smarty pants or ignorant, rich, poor, doesn't matter the color of your skin, where you grew up, none of that matters. We're all welcomed into the kingdom of God in only one way, through saving faith in Christ alone. You guys also know that there are two sides to that coin. There's the belief side and there's a repentance side, and you don't have the coin unless you got both sides. In repentance, we turn from our sinful, self-willed life, and in faith, we turn to Christ alone for salvation. When you do that, when you respond to the good news with repentance and faith, Christ saves you. He welcomes you into the family of God forever, never to kick you out, never to let you walk away. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the story that we read today in Acts is all about God, and it's all about His glory. Why did He create humanity in the first place? It was for His pleasure and for His glory. Why has he made a way to redeem and rescue humanity is for his pleasure and his glory. Why did he choose the the Jewish people as his chosen nation in the Old Testament for his pleasure and his glory? And why is he now blowing open the doors of his family to all kinds of people through the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is for his pleasure and his glory 
is all about him. So whether it's Paul and Barnabas walking mile after mile and getting beat up and getting thrown out and being left for dead and going back to love those people, or it's you and I living our really pretty boring life when you compare it to what Paul and Barnabas lived. We exist as individuals and as families and as a church for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. When we deserved nothing but wrath and punishment, you took the wrath and punishment that we deserved and you gave us grace and mercy instead. Out of love for us, your rebellious creatures, you made a way for us to be saved. And not just saved individually, but saved together into a church community. But I pray for this church that they would live individually, as families, and as a church, for your glory. In Jesus' name.